This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show Chuck Collins, who is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good for the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a Northampton, Boston, and Washington, D.C.-based organization, the National Priorities Project, of course, which is uh, located here in Northampton, founded and run out of Northampton for a long time, is a part of the uh, Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck Collins has been with us before talking about inequality and the common good. He is the author of Born on Third Base, one of my favorite books about wealth inequality, and the more recently, The Wealth Hoarders. And one reason that Chuck has such, I think, cachet here in uh, Western Massachusetts is that he really founded um, uh, or grounded his political and personal philosophy and made it real coming out of his experience, his experiences working and living here in Western Massachusetts, Massachusetts, which is tied into what he did when he inherited what was at that time a significant amount of money and what he did with it. And the reason Chuck is with us today is because there have been recent, very recent announcements by Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, and recent actions by Mackenzie Scott, uh, dealing with the giving away of billions and billions of dollars. We're going to delve into that in just a minute. I thought it would be helpful for those of our listeners who don't know Chuck Collins's story to have him share with us today, uh, at least in outline form, what it is, because there are some really significant connections, I think, between what what Chuck Collins has done and what Jeff, Jeff Bezos says he is going to do. Chuck, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, share with our listeners, if you would, a bit of your background, because I think it's really relevant, and I think it's also a very moving and instructive story. Well, thanks, thanks, Bill, and uh, thanks for ha- inviting that discussion. I, I guess I would put it back in early 1980s. I'm living in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and like a lot of the people in uh, the Pioneer Valley, I had some really important elders, Wally and Juanita Nelson and Francis Crow, and people who uh, were really thinking about how to how to address militarism and inequality. Um, and so, yeah, when I was 25, 26, I, I made this decision to give away the inheritance. I, I, uh, I kind of won the lottery at birth by being born into the Oscar Mayer meatpacking family. And, uh, and that's where the family wealth came from. But um, I, at the age of 26, I, I was sort of uh, encouraged to, to move that money along uh, and give it to some foundations working for change, uh, not just traditional charity, but like the Haymarket People's Fund and the Peace Development Fund in the Valley. Um, so I gave that wealth away. That was a while ago, well, almost 40 years ago. Uh, so I'm still living on the north end of the valley, but yeah, that that gave me an intimate front row seat into how the system of inequality, as well as the limits of philanthropy, um, play out and have played out as we become a more unequal society. Some of your insights came from the work you were doing here in Western Massachusetts. So tell our listeners who don't know that story, if you would tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. I- Institute for Community Economics, which was based in Greenfield, later in Springfield, uh, an organization that no longer exists, but it was working on uh, affordable housing um, and creating community land trusts for affordable housing and moving capital out of the stock market and into community investments. Zincat was working with mobile home park tenants in Birdston, Massachusetts who were trying to buy their mobile home park and own it as a cooperative, you know, kind of a uh, a consultant or support to that effort. And uh, that park still exists. It's still owned for 30 resident owned mobile home park in Bernardston, as well as hundreds of other mobile home parks around New England. So you were working with the, the, uh, persons who lived in the mobile park. They had an enormous fight with the owner of the park. They were not dispossessed, and that was a victory for you as the organizer and them, of course. Uh, 
as the people who live there to save their homes. And that was, as you write in your, your book, uh, Born on Third Base, really instructive and helpful for you in forming and making more concrete some of your thoughts, intuitions, and insights with regard to wealth inequality. I, I'd, I'd like to ask you, Chuck Collins, we uh, promoted the show with you today by talking about Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Scott. For those of our listeners who don't know the story and what they have said and what at least one of them has done, tell us what that is, and then we're going to delve into what it means, particularly given the extraordinary wealth inequality that has developed uh, in this country over the past decade or two. Well, uh, you know, obviously uh, Mackenzie Scott and Jeff Bezos were married, and uh, when they divorced, Mackenzie Scott got a substantial amount of Amazon stock, probably still worth today close to $50, $60 billion. Uh, Jeff Bezos, now one of the wealthiest people in the world, uh, his wealth is, as of yesterday, about $144 billion. Uh, but both of them have slightly different approaches to giving it away. Uh, Mackenzie Scott, in some ways, I think has been the model and the disruptor, uh, which is, she basically said, look, I'm going to empty the vault, meaning I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to give it away in my lifetime. And she started in at a pretty fast clip. I mean, three years into this process, she's given away $14 billion, uh, including an announcement last week, uh, two, $2 billion uh, additional gifts. What's interesting about her is she didn't create the Mackenzie Scott Foundation. She just is giving it directly to groups, general support. She does a certain amount of due diligence and then says, and then sends out the checks. There's not a big bureaucracy there. She doesn't have a foundation, thousand staff like the Gates Foundation. So she's sort of an exemplar of like, let's just move it. There. The needs are urgent. Uh, her ex, Jeff Bezos, he's been kind of more on the making a lot of announcements, uh, saying pledging he's going to give ten billion for climate change. That was a couple of years ago, and now he's sort of it's sort of sad in a way. It looks like he's sort of buying his friends. You know, I'm going to give a hundred million dollars to Dolly Parton because she's such a popular person and uh, maybe by association with her some of that will rub off on me. Um, so anyway, they're, they're, here are two of the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, you know, the one thing is I think <clears throat> we want them to pay their fair share of taxes. That's probably the first thing we should say when we talk about philanthropy. We shouldn't get distracted or have our head turned by the fact that they're giving this money away when Jeff Bezos pays very little taxes. So, you know, these charitable acts are not a substitute for paying the workers at Amazon a fair living wage and paying their fair share of taxes. And then at, after that point, we're happy that they're giving their money to the meaningful things. So does Mackenzie Scott, who, because of her divorce from Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, came away from that marriage with 50 or $60 billion of uh, Amazon stock. Um, can you tell us, or does she disclose where the money that she is giving away, the billions that she has given away, the organizations, the institutions to which the, her philanthropy has been directed? Yeah, it seems like every six months she posts a, uh, a little piece that she writes on her Medium account listing where all the grants are gone. So the most recent tranche of gifts has gone to uh, a lot of, um, you know, initially she was doing a lot of stuff around COVID relief, racial justice. Uh, she supports a lot of existing institutions, uh, the Girl Scouts, <laughs> the um, Urban Leagues. So, yeah, you can she actually gave some money to, go she, on her. She gave some money to a historically black college that was of enormous consequence to, to that college, too. Yes, She's, she gave a lot of money to food banks in one tranche, state food banks all around the country, historically black colleges, not just one, but dozens of them, or, you know, the 14 big ones, all got Mackenzie Scott gifts. So she is moving the money without a lot of bureaucracy and without a lot of strings attached. And people appreciate that because it's sort of like a vote of confidence. It's not like I'm going to make you jump through a lot of hoops fill out a lot of paperwork and tell me six projects that you want me to fund. She says, I, I basically trust your work. And, 
I trust that you'll figure out a way to manage a large one-time gift in a a way that doesn't disrupt your organization. So by contrast, or as we were talking before we went on the air, apparently by contrast, Jeff Bezos, with his give or take $150 billion, it's just an unfathomable amount of wealth, uh, has made an announcement, but he actually hasn't given money away. And it's not clear whether... He wants to give the money away directly to other groups, organizations, and institutions the way his uh, former wife, uh, Mackenzie Scott, is doing, or whether he intends to keep the money under his control with a Jeff Bezos foundation and then dole it out over years. What's your understanding of what his intention is and what he has said, and what's your perspective on that? Well, uh, um you know, I think he, what happened is most recently, two days ago, he told CNN uh, he's going to give away the majority of his wealth while he's alive. And uh, now he hasn't formally taken the giving pledge. The giving pledge is actually uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett started this effort to try to get billionaires to move their money while they're alive, inspired by a guy named Chuck Feeney, uh, the duty-free shop guy who gave away $8 billion and now pretty much gave it all away. He lives in a little apartment in San Francisco. He's no longer a billionaire. He's not even necessarily a multimillionaire. So he was sort of the model for this giving pledge. So they have like 230 billionaires around the world who've taken this pledge. But I'm starting to feel more skeptical just about announcements because you can announce that you're giving money away. There's no real accountability there. You can even give the money to your own private foundation or donor advice fund, but that doesn't mean the money's leaving your domain. Uh, you know, it, it, we should really be only having these conversations when the money reaches the recipient groups, when the money's out the door and going to the nonprofit groups doing the public interest work. That's when we should say, okay, the gift has been made, as opposed to an announcement or even a donation to a donor's personal private foundation. And there's a big difference between a, do- a donor giving to their personal foundation that they control and giving money away to other groups that are going to spend it as they, those individual groups, determine the money should be spent. And that's a world of difference, which I'd appreciate your explaining a bit more to our listeners, please. Yeah, I mean, if, I, I would start by just saying we should be thinking about this as our tax dollars at work because these donors get substantial tax reductions. Now, if you're a billionaire, uh, um, which you're not, Bill, but someday you could be. If, if for every dollar that you give to the Bill Newman Foundation, the rest of us are chipping in 74 cents of lost tax revenue, meaning you've reduced not only your income tax, you've reduced your estate taxes, gift taxes, capital gains taxes, and that's a big subsidy. Now, that's a word that most people don't think of when they think of charitable giving, but we as taxpayers subsidize these donations. So if a donor gives a billion dollars to their foundation, that money, they get a tax break immediately. They get a tax reduction. But that money doesn't necessarily move to the recipient groups. Now, foundations have to give away 5% of their assets every year, but they can include their overhead. They can include Bill hiring all of his friends to work at the foundation, have meetings and Caribbean resorts, you know, they, you can chew up a lot of that 5%. Not, 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 you know, blaming you or anything. It's the system. Thank you. <laughs> but listen, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break here. And when I come back, we're actually, for our listeners, going to do something that will not make their gla- eyes glaze over. We're going to explain how, when a multibillionaire gives away the money, we, the taxpayers, are actually giving away most of that and bearing most of that burden. We're going to explain that right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Tumble out of bed and 
Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? This is a Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with this. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. I like what you there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street want to support the kind of local talk you hear on the bill newman show want to hear your business's message here on whmp email us your message at whmp.com we'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite whmp show and we'll be supporting the local news valley talk and progressive voices you hear right here on whmp let us know about your message email us your message at whmp.com and add your message to our mission and hear your message right here on whmp your message at whmp.com this is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Chuck Collins, who is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, the Northampton, Boston, and Washington, D.C.-based organization. He is the author of Born on Third Base and, most recently, The Wealth Hoarders. I would like to go back to the question that I raised just before the break, Chuck, and that is to make clear how when, for example, a Jeff Bezos gives a billion dollars away to the Jeff Bezos Foundation, uh, which we're waiting for it to happen, not to mention the $150 billion that he's talking about, or at least most of it, most of that money actually is subsidized by taxpayers other than him. And I was hoping that you could explain that to our listeners a bit more, because it sounds like an enormously generous thing, but it's not quite what it, the announcement would make it look like. So tell us why. Well, if you think about, uh, you know, if Bezos away a billion dollars, um, most of that is capital gains, meaning that it's uh, wealth that's never been subject to any tax in his private foundation essentially reduces his estate his gains liability. he's never going to pay any kind of taxes on that and he gets a fairly generous tax reduction which he can spread out over several years so we like to think that this is you know, pure beneficence and generosity but it's actually um, you know it's a big sub it's a big break for the wealthiest people in the society 
and the wealthier you are, the bigger the tax break. Most people, when we give to charity, you reduce your income tax, but these folks are reducing their lifetime estate and capital gains taxes too. So it's a huge subsidy, 74 cents on the dollar, I say. And that's because, the, let's take a, just a billion dollars of capital gains, for example. Uh, they give away a billion dollars of appreciated stock worth a billion dollars. They now have a $1 billion tax deduction that they can take over years if they wish to. They'll never pay any capital gains tax on that billion dollars so that the federal and state treasuries are out on the billion, say $350 million, uh, and they have the deduction of the billion dollars that will further reduce their uh Will, that will reduce their taxes by another uh, 35 plus percent. So between the taxes that they're not paying and the uh, taxes that they are avoiding as well, um, that gets you to the 74 cents that everyone else is paying. So their contribution is actually 74 percent uh, subsidized by other taxpayers. Do I have that basically right? You you do, and and I just think it's probably worth underscoring when when a billionaire doesn't pay their fair share of taxes, the rest of us have to pick the slack. So it's shifting the obligations for paying for caring for veterans and environmental protection, whatever, onto everyone else. And then money sitting there. So now what? Well, if it's in a private foundation, there's no guarantee that money is going to move in a timely way to solve any of the real problems. You, you know, he says he's going to fund the work around climate change. But in fact, we might be sitting around in two generations and his, his grandchildren will still be deciding where the money goes, even though he got the tax break in 2022. So, you know, part of the problem is wealthy don't give to their own intermediaries. And now it's like 42% of every tax, all, all the charitable giving goes to these intermediaries that are controlled by the donors. So there's a vast kind of warehousing of charitable dollars that could be deployed to solve problems today, but isn't. And you have a suggestion uh, for what to do about that, because as you pointed out, Chuck Collins, the requirement is for a private foundation to spend 5% of their assets a year, but those assets can go to, well, the uh, uh, family president of the foundation and gave him or her or them a large salary and all the other expenses. So they're not necessarily giving away 5% of the assets or even anything close to it. And they continue to control all the money in, in perpetuity. So you have a suggestion, or I think that the Institute for Policy Studies has a suggestion, which is to raise that 5% to 10% a year. Uh, and I'd appreciate knowing more about that and whether that has any chance of ever becoming a requirement, a law, an IRS regulation, or anything like that. Yeah, I, uh, we, we do a whole project called the Charity Reform Initiative and pushes for these changes. And so, yeah, one is, as you just said, Bill, let's use the payout. Why foundations are only required to pay out 5%? Make them pay out 10%. Second, exclude overhead from that payout percentage. You know, so office rent, salaries, fees for investment advisors, meetings and conference, none of that counts toward toward a donation, toward the payout. And the, the other thing we would recommend is, is, is closing down this loophole around what they call donor advised funds, which have no payout requirements. So people open up a donor advised fund at the Fidelity and put the money in there, they get a tax break that year, but there's no requirement that those funds be paid out. So we, we, ha we have a few, I guess you could call them uh, tweaks or reforms to the laws governing charity that we think would move the money, protect the taxpayer's integrity, the integrity of the tax system. So let's go back, if, we would, if you could, to uh, this week's announcement from uh, Jeff Bezos and... Uh, Mackenzie Scott, uh, do you see this billionaire pledge, which was, I think, founded by uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, uh, to give away substantial, the majority of their wealth during their lifetimes, do you see that as actually being a significant benefit to 
the rest of the people on planet Earth? It sort of begs this bigger question is what is it that we want billionaires to do? What is it the society should require of billionaires? I mean, I would say the first and foremost is uh, you can't extract so much wealth from the real economy by underpaying workers and exploiting uh, environmental resources and that sort of thing. The second is these folks should pay their fair share of taxes. So even before we start talking about their charitable giving, you know, we should we should make that the wealth is not, you know, extracted in a way that's harmful, and people pay their fair share of taxes. After that, yeah, we want to encourage people to give money, not just buy another yacht, but give money to some of the huge problems that our societies are facing. Um, so, you know, I think this the giving pledge is better than doing nothing. The irony is that the, the 230 billionaires who've signed the pledge, now now 12 years along, their wealth is growing way faster than they're able to give it away. Uh, so they're just not moving the money fast enough. That's truly their pledge. And what it means is it's they're just going to end up dropping it into their family foundation. That's how they're going to fulfill their pledge. And that doesn't necessarily mean the money is going to move. So we're back to what we were talking about. There's this huge warehousing of charitable dollars we need to incentivize or change the laws so the money flows a lot faster than it currently is. Is there a bill in Congress, we can conclude with this, is there a bill in Congress that would force that to happen, or is this simply a uh, planning, uh, in the planning stages at this point, to try to force this money to get to the groups and organizations that so desperately need it? Yeah, there actually is legislation called the ACE Act, uh, legislation to accelerate charitable effectiveness uh, that would make some of these changes. But in the next session, we're going to introduce an e even bolder uh, legislative proposal. Uh, we actually think it'll have uh, even Republican co-sponsors because uh, some of the Republicans also see the abuses in the charity system and, and uh, want to fix those as well. So even in a divided Congress, there's an opportunity that we might be able to fix some of these uh, abuses. We are going to leave it there. We have been talking with Chuck Collins, who's the director of the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies of the Northampton, Boston, Washington, D.C.-based organization, the author of Born on the Third Base and The Wealth Hoarders, two terrific books you should read. Chuck Collins, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your insight. Thanks for all your work. Thanks, Bill. Take care. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst Town Manager Paul Bockelman is getting high reviews for job performance once again, but the council is hoping for an improved relationship with UMass. The town council released their individual performance reviews of Bockelman with good marks. However, there is concern there are too many demands placed on him. The Gazette reports the council would also like to see Bockelman improve morale within the police department and include more voices from black, indigenous, and people of color communities in shaping policy. The Springfield Police Department is investigating after an officer was involved in a shooting on Wednesday. The shooting happened around 7.20 a.m. on Woodside Terrace. The suspect, an adult male, was shot and taken to Bay State Medical Center. He was then placed under arrest for multiple charges. The uniformed officer was not injured. The Greenfield Police Department is searching for a male suspect after a stabbing Wednesday afternoon. The assault took place around 4.30 at 239 Main Street in Greenfield. The victim was transported to the hospital. His current condition is unknown. The Greenfield Police Department's Detective Bureau is investigating. A new bus service is now up and running. Our Bus, a company with service in 100 markets nationwide, launched a New York City route earlier this month with stops that included Holyoke, Northampton, and Amherst. A Boston route will start next Tuesday that will take passengers from Northampton, Amherst, and Belchertown to Logan Airport with fares starting at $25. 
Some cloud combination today, breezy. Watch out for a few flurries, even a light snow shower this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 24 to 30, partly to mostly sunny and breezy tomorrow, a high of 40 to 44. We don't make it out of the 30s over the weekend. On 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La legislación para proteger los matrimonios entre personas del mismo sexo e interraciales superó un importante obstáculo en el Senado el miércoles, poniendo al Congreso en camino de dar paso histórico de garantizar que tales uniones estén consagradas en la ley federal. 12 republicanos votaron con todos los demócratas para avanzar en la legislación, lo que significa que la votación final podría tener lugar esta semana o más tarde este mes. Los demócratas del Senado se están moviendo rápidamente para aprobar el proyecto de ley, mientras el partido aún con controla la Cámara. El proyecto de ley ha ganado un impulso constante desde la decisión de junio de la Corte Suprema que anuló Roe vs. Wade y el derecho federal al aborto. Una opinión en ese momento del juez Clarence Thomas sugirió que una decisión anterior del Tribunal Superior que protegía el matrimonio entre personas del mismo sexo también podría verse amenazada. En otras informaciones, los republicanos ganaron el miércoles el control de la Cámara de Representantes de Estados Unidos, lo que devolvió al Partido Republicano al poder en Washington y dio a los conservadores influencia para desbaratar la agenda del presidente Joe Biden y estimular una serie de investigaciones. Pero una mayoría débil y apenas existente planteará desafíos inmediatos para los líderes republicanos y complicará la capacidad del partido para gobernar. Más de una semana después del día de las elecciones, los republicanos aseguraron el escaño 210 necesario para quitarle el control demócrata a la Cámara. Eso está muy lejos de la victoria arrolladora llamada la oleada roja que predijo el Partido Republicano antes de las elecciones de mitad de periodo de este año, cuando el partido esperaba restablecer la agenda en el Capitolio, capitalizando los desafíos económicos y la popularidad rezagada de Biden. Yo soy Johan Rashid Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is our usual Thursday, Reverend and the Rabbi segment. Rabbi Justin David is traveling back from Israel today. For our, up to our update, we can update where uh, Rabbi Justin is. He's on a bus coming back from, from New York. So we didn't think that would be actually a terribly good connection <laughs> to today. And uh, our other uh, regular reverends and rabbis are attending to various obligations that they have that were unexpected that have come up. So we are so pleased today to have with us back on the show Rabbi David Seidenberg, who is not a pulpit rabbi, lives in Northampton. And Rabbi David, I would appreciate it if you would explain to us, um, you're a rabbi, but you don't have a congregation. You do a lot of work that rabbis and uh, normally do, and I'd appreciate your telling us whether that was how you envisioned your career and your life's work when uh, you set out to become a rabbi, not an insignificant amount of time, effort, energy uh, to, to achieve that, that goal and that position. So tell us a bit about what it means to be or not be a pulpit rabbi. Oh, but part of your question was, what did I set out to be? Can I start out with that? Sure. Because originally I had wanted to be a Hillel rabbi, that is, a rabbi on college campus. And while I was in school, the nature of that position changed. And so no, it, it turned into something that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do anymore. But I never had wanted to be a pulpit rabbi even when I started out. So, uh, my work is mainly teaching and writing, uh, but you know what's true about most people who are not in a pulpit is they end up having a kind of a flock, for lack of a better word, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a group of people that are looking for their teachings and listening for what they have to say. And so, it's not like you don't have a pulpit, you just don't have a congregation. So you have a bully pulpit, but you don't have... have a bully pulpit. <laughs> Not a pulpit, but a bully pulpit. Yeah, that's the right way to put it. And you, where did you, where did you uh, study to become a rabbi? Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. 
and how many and, how many uh, how many years is that program? That's five or six years. And then I got a second ordination from Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who's the founder of Jewish Renewal, uh, some years later. And I would like to know, uh, well, I'd like to know this. You have written a, a book that was very, very, very well received and is well regarded. Uh, tell us what you wrote about, and then we're going to talk about some of the content of it. Yeah, so the book's Kabbalah and Ecology, and the entire book is about the question of the image of God. And I'll tell you, um, there's some big theological ideas that are undergirding girding the book, but the basic question is, can, can, uh, can religion be made uh, safe for the earth? That is, uh, the Abrahamic and monotheistic traditions have participated in a lot of damage. Uh, a civilization is a damaging, destructive civilization. Our civilization is a civilization that will create extinction. And the question is, can we create a different civilization? That's a question for everyone. That's part of what COP27 is all about. But then the second question is, can religion be part of that process? Or is religion uh, something that holds us back from creating a sustainable world? Let me ask you this. Um, the title of your book is Kabbalah and Ecology. Let's let's take a step back first. What, what does Kabbalah mean? Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. Um, Jewish mysticism that dates back, of course, to the Bible, but the, the Jewish mysticism usually referred to by Kabbalah began in around the 11th, 12th century. And, is, um, and, and well, I guess we should, let's, let's just go down this road a little bit further. What is Jewish mysticism? So speaking just about the Kabbalah that's from the 12th century on, because there are a bunch of varieties of Jewish mysticism, but just speaking about that part of it, it's basically an idea that, that there isn't a creator and a creation, but rather there's a kind of a continuity between creator and creation so that God emanates the world. The world never stops being part of God. And there's no point at which something is not God. The world is still entirely Composed of God. God comprises all of creation. And was there a founder, uh, a recognized founder of Jewish mysticism? And you say uh, its origins are in the 12th century. Where did it come from? Well, there's a bunch of strains of Jewish mysticism before that that go back to ancient and biblical times that have different elements, a lot about angels and the palaces of heaven and meditation in order to ascend to those palaces and things like that, and trying to have encounters with God. Uh, so that's, that's always part of mysticism, and that's, that's generally for any theistic religion. Encounters with God are part of what mysticism is. But, uh, no, I lost the thread. I'm sorry, Newt. No, no. Well, uh, well l l let me ask you a bit more about that. Is uh, mysticism a significant part of any one of the branches of Judaism? Is it something that permeates uh, both Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, and Reconstruction uh, is, uh, Judaism? Uh, wh where, where does this fit in, 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 in the, uh, I don't want to say hierarchy, but in, in the uh, 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 structure of Judaism? Where does mysticism fit? That happens to be a much more interesting question than you might imagine. Oh, everyone, uh, every once in a while, I luck into one. So, okay, talk to me. Yeah. Well, uh, the Kabbalah that I'm talking about, uh, the 12th century started Kabbalah. Oh, yes, you had asked where does it come from. It doesn't have an original author. Uh, that is, the books don't are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know where, where some of them came from. Uh, and then some of them, we do know who wrote them. But it, it, it's kind of, that's another ball of wax, so let's not go into that for the moment. Um, but in terms of how it influences, Kabbalah went from its inception and from its current forms inception in the 12th century had a big impact on different parts of the Jewish community and how they understood why they were doing Jewish practices. So the fundamental element is the idea that the reason why we do Jewish practices, mitzvot, rituals, um, deeds, etc., is not just because those things, you know, you don't do a good deed just because it's good in itself. You also do that, but also because it changes the way that God 
God's energy flows into the universe. And so by acting in the right way and acting in a ritualistically empowered way, you increase the flow of divine energy, which increases life and increases the holiness of the world. Is there... So that, that is, it became a cosmic reason for doing everything in Jewish. So that's why I caught on, because it gave everything a lot of meaning. So it caught on in a big way throughout the Jewish world. Well, t- tell me this. I want to go back to this question. There are, of course, diff- different uh, uh, aspects and in Jewish institutions and uh, uh, theological approaches to the world and Reform Judaism is very different from Orthodox Judaism. is really different from re- the Reconstructionists. Um, does mysticism have more influence on one or more of those branches of Judaism? So that's the interesting part of the question, because in the modern era, what we be called the Enlightenment, when uh, Reform Judaism started, when when all these kinds of varieties of Judaism started, a lot of them were rebellions against certain aspects of tradition, and one of the aspects of tradition that was very part of much being rebelled against is Jewish mysticism, because it is superstitious and not rationalist in its general form. Superstitious is, you know, a pejorative term. That's not how the Kabbalists would see it, but that's how the, the reform, you know, the people starting out with Reform Judaism thought. So initially, Kabbalah was pretty much forbidden. I don't mean like with by a rule book or anything, but you know it was not something that was looked upon with any favor at all in Reform or conservative Judaism, and even in within Orthodoxy there was some split about that. But really, since the middle of the last century, I would say it's become a more and more important force in all aspects of Judaism, and the part of Judaism that I'm closest to Jewish renewal. Uh, is very much rooted in Kabbalah, and that's informing almost everything that, that happens in Jewish renewal. We are speaking with Rabbi David Seidenberg. We are going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, I want to ask him about environmental activism, both across the country and more specifically here in the Valley. We'll be right back. Forget your perfect offering. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. There is a When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Shop the work of over 200 artists in glass, ceramics, clothing, jewelry, and more. At the Snow Farm Second Sale, the artists may think they're seconds, but you'll never know. Except by the price. Three weekends in November, with new work every weekend. Shop local and handmade. You'll support Snow Farm and the artists. Reserve a shopping time in advance to limit large groups. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 10 to 4 in Williamsburg. The Snow Farm Second Sale. For details and reservations, go to snowfarm.org. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. 
It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it, and if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Rabbi David Seidenberg. And what I want to ask of you about, Rabbi, is, and, I, and I'm asking you because I know you are so involved in uh, environmental justice, um, I'm, I'm going to quote back to you from Genesis. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Again, God said, let man in our image have dominion over, and then the list begins. What does that mean? This is not a simple question, as you might guess. And the interpretation has been used to justify all kinds of nasty stuff, what dominion means. But according to Jewish tradition, dominion really means responsibility for us. It doesn't mean rights to do with as you wish. So, uh, well, here's a teaching that might be valuable. So, you know, after the flood story, when Noah and the animals come out, God officially gives permission to human beings to kill and eat animals. And it says in the Torah there that a fear and a dread of you, of the human beings, will be upon every animal of the earth. And if dominion meant just to use up and destroy, then that would be the same thing as a fear, fear and dread. That is, the rest of creation should fear and dread us because we have the power to destroy it. However, according to the Midrash, there have been the commentary, the meaning of that is the opposite of dominion. So dominion means that you can call to the animal and they come to you. They don't run away from you, they come to you. It means the power to tame, to come into close relationship to. And fear and dread are the exact opposite. So we live in a world where there's no distinction between responsibility for and rights to destroy. Well, let, 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 let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you up there because uh, before we go down that path, I, I want to ask a more basic question, if I might, which is: Is this a question of what the appropriate translation of the either the Hebrew word or the Aramaic word in, in, in the Torah uh, was in the, in the in Genesis? Is this a translation issue? It's not just a translation issue. If it were, that would be much easier to fix. The word itself is complicated, and you can't really get a sense of what it means without taking into account the entire Torah. Well, that's a little, that's a little big for the time we have left, the entire <laughs> Torah. Sorry about that. Dang, sorry. You do the whole story in one show. <laughs> you can't even do it in a whole year. Oh, wait, yes, you can. Or three years. Three years. Oh, three years. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Rabbi David, please, we interrupted you. No, you didn't. I finished my thought. Well, then tell us. It's not just a translation issue, but is that part of the question here, which is what is the word in, as originally written and what whether the word uh, really is dominion or is that was something that was uh, a translation, and I don't know when dominion became the English word, but uh, the uh, awful lot of belief uh, hinges on that word. So what more can you tell us about it? Look, I think actually the more important thing is context rather than the specific word. Okay. What the word means is unclear. 
And by the way, my entire book is it's not about dominion, but it's about the first half of the verse, God created us in God's image. Because one of the implications is that if we're in God's image, then we can create and destroy the way God does, if you think that that's what that means. So the whole book is about tracing what the image means, and that directs directly relates to how you interpret dominion in the second half of that same verse. But it's a reading problem, because it's the first thing that happens in the Torah, is this story that has the word dominion in it. And then that colors the way you read everything else. There's two creation stories there. You could have put the other one first, and then it would look really different. Because in the second creation story, the power of the human is not to destroy or to use at all. The power is to tame, right? It says that the human gave, the, the animals came to the human, and the human gave them names. And that is really the second interpretation, the second creation story's interpretation of what dominion means is that it means the power to name, to give names to, which has nothing to do with destroying or using up or consuming. So if that story were first, so you'd have a different way of reading the whole Torah, perhaps. When you say there are two, two creation stories, that refers to uh, the two different stories both in Genesis, about the beginning of the world, uh, do I have? Right. And is there some uh, explanation for why uh, the Bible starts with, well, in the Torah, uh, here's how the earth began, and then not so many verses later, chapters later, uh, there's a different story about how the earth began. Um, is there some explanation, historical or otherwise, for that? There are many explanations. Look, the big one, the secular big one, is that there were two different books that got put into one book. More than two different books, but those are coming, the, the, the idea is that those were coming from two different traditions, and then later somebody combined them into a single tradition. Uh, um, an answer that relates more to how we understand Judaism from the inside is that there's not one way of looking at the truth and that you need multiple perspectives in order to get at the truth. One perspective is never sufficient or good enough for understanding what reality is. So having two stories means that neither story is completely true, and both stories both inform and contradict each other, and that opens up many more worlds of possibility for what things mean. Which is where we're going to leave it today. We have been speaking with Rabbi David Seidenberg. We're going to have him back on the show because we want to talk about the environment, environmental activism more with him. We appreciate your time today, Rabbi, your insights, your expertise, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Monty. There was green alligators and long neck geese. There's some humpty back camel and some chimpanzees. I know a cry. Close the door for the rain is falling. And we just can't wait for no The Valley and the world's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus goes over the hill. Young at Heart Chorus celebrating their 40th anniversary this Sunday, 3 p.m. Academy of Music, Northampton. Celebrate 40 years of Young at Heart with new reinterpretations of their most iconic songs from their repertoire throughout the last 40 years. Me while I kiss the sky. From the concert halls of Northampton to the silver screen with an award-winning documentary to tours all over the globe, Young at Heart and their music is beloved. Celebrate their 40th anniversary with them this Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m., Academy of Music. Tickets, aomtheater.com. Young at Heart Chorus's 40th anniversary. Live and local this news Sunday, and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's time.